If you will, uh, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes 1. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, Ecclesiastes 1. Um, I'm going to read 1 through 14. We'll probably only get through 1 through 3 because there's a lot of background information uh, that we need to look at before we start this study. Uh, But I will read 1 through 14. Verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, they will flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. And that is God's word. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. This morning we're going to begin a new Sunday school series in what I now believe is the most difficult book that I've had to wrestle with uh, so far. Um, There are several reasons why this book has been very difficult. First, there there are parts of this book where it appears as if the author, and we're going to look at the author, has a fatalistic worldview, or he is just completely morose or or downcast of, of soul. It's as if the author is just in perpetual lament and has a view of the world that can seem quite opposite of the Christian worldview. So it can be difficult to understand at times what the author would have us to know about this text, to know about God and about ourselves. Second, there are several passages that we're going to be looking at as we go along that are incredibly hard to interpret. And there is a disagreement throughout church history over several of these passages in Ecclesiastes, some of them not a single person agree on um, among the Reformed commentators. Thus, it can be very difficult when you're reading through Ecclesiastes and you try to consult the commentators to, to help you in your study uh, determine what certain passages mean. Uh, But before we get into the text this morning, let's look at uh, several factors that will help us to interpret the book and to to know what God would have us to know as we go through Ecclesiastes. First is the title, Ecclesiastes. So in the Hebrew tradition, the title of the book is Kohelet, which means gatherer, one who gathers. Now this would refer to a person who 
gathers up proverbs of sayings and combines them, which is mentioned by the author in Ecclesiastes 12.9, that, that he stores up these things. Or it could mean the gathering of people for the, uh, the teaching of wisdom. And I think either of these would be appropriate for the book because the author does gather up wisdom and the author does impart wisdom. As it pertains to the English word Ecclesiastes, it was Martin Luther who popularized this term preacher. And it's from his German translation, which he called prediger, which means preacher. And that is uh, derived from the first verse of Ecclesiastes, which says the words of the preacher, or the words of the gatherer, or the kohelet, the one who teaches. So that's where the title comes from. So then you have the genre, or the, the author. Who is the author? What is the book about? How is it formed? As it pertains to the, the genre, this is a book of wisdom. It's wisdom literature. Throughout church history, this book has been called a wisdom book, along with Job and with Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. It is a collection gathered together arranged to impart wisdom to the hearer. When you read it, you are to read it and become wise. But at the micro level, when you look at each part of Ecclesiastes, you're going to see various types of subgenre. Uh, you're going to see different things as you go through it. You're going to see small, pithy proverbs, which are little sayings that, that employ parallels, that employ wisdom usually between something good and something bad, and you'll see that as we go through. Uh, the author will say, this is better than this. There are several of those better than proverbs throughout the book. You also have large sections of this book that are autobiographical. Uh, what, what the author does is he recounts his life journey throughout the book. He talks about his life and what he has discovered upon this journey, and it is in first person. There are sections of reflection that arise from what the preacher has learned. As you read through it, you will see that the preacher, the author, will stop and he will reflect upon what he's just said, or reflect upon his life, or what he's talking about at the, at the time. And it's, it's really these, that, this section, this, this reflection that dominates the book of Ecclesiastes. There are also poems throughout the book, as well as rhetorical questions, which act for us as a, a mirror uh, to, in, to get us to stop and to think, to pause, and to reflect as well on what he has just said and examine ourselves as we read Ecclesiastes. There are example stories, there are woe oracles, blessings, imperatives, all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's for this reason that so many have had trouble reading Ecclesiastes or interpreting the book, because there are so many different subgenres throughout the book, and those subgenres can often flip between verses. You'll be reading uh, you'll read a woe article, a woe oracle, and then all of a sudden, the
there'll be a poem, and then all of a sudden there'll be a pithy proverb. So it can be very difficult sometimes as you go through to follow the train of thought. These things can make the book difficult, but the intention is to become wise as you read it. The author. In verse 1, the author identifies himself as the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And there have been some who has disputed the authorship of this book, but I think by inward testimony, by this statement and by other things in the book, we can determine that the author is Solomon. Throughout the book, we're given more evidence that he wrote Ecclesiastes. You have in Ecclesiastes 1.12, the author tells us that I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Okay, well, that sounds like Solomon. So the author is the son of David, and he ruled as a king in Jerusalem. He later tells us in verse 16 of chapter 1 that he possessed unsurpassed wisdom. Well, who's the wisest of all the kings? That was Solomon. Also in chapter 2, it says that the, the preacher here has unrivaled wealth. Well, that would probably be Solomon. It would actually be none other than Solomon combining these things and looking at these things, who was considered the most wise, most wealthy king of Jerusalem, and he was the son of King David. As I've studied, I've also become quite convinced that this was probably the last book written by Solomon. And this book kind of serves as a repentance narrative. It reads as a man who is at the end of his life, and he, he stops and he's, he's reflecting upon his life. He turns and he looks at all of his pursuits, all of his passions, and he examines them. He examines himself. And what does he find? He finds that most of what he pursued was vanity. And although Solomon was the most wise, the most wealthy, he was king, he was also a great sinner. And his sin was very great. We read that in 1 Kings 11. We're told that King Solomon took to himself and loved many foreign wives. And these include, if you look at uh, 1 Kings 11, Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites, uh, Sidonians and Hittite women. And this was a, a real scandalous thing for the king to do. He married many, many women, and those women turned his heart away to other gods. So you, as you read through 1 Kings, it can be quite shocking because... It's not exactly how you think Solomon's life is going to go. For example, in chapter 3, we're told that Solomon loved the Lord, and he walked in the statutes of his father David. And what are we told about David? That David loved God, and he followed after God. So here in chapter 3, we have Solomon who loves God. He's following after God. He's walking in the statutes of his father David. Listen to Solomon's prayer here in uh, 1 Kings 3. So this is Solomon praying to God and God responding back to Solomon. It says, Then Solomon said, 
You have shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness, that you have given him a son to sit on his throne. And it is that day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to come out or go in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. So, so that's what Solomon is saying as he's about to become king. He's saying, you put me in the midst of your people. These are your covenant people. And I don't know what I'm doing. And what do I, I need you, God. So you read that and you think, oh, yeah, this is, he's not going to turn his heart away from God. He, this is a man after God's heart as well. And God responds to this prayer of Solomon. And he says, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commands, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So th this prayer of Solomon is really a fantastic prayer because what, what does Solomon understand at this time? I'm to rule your people. I'm to lead your people, God. I don't know when I go out, when I come in, I know nothing. And God's saying, what do you want, Solomon? And Solomon could have said, I want power, I want riches, I want fame, I want all these things, but he, instead, he doesn't ask for that. He needs wisdom. He needs to know how to lead the people of God. So we can read this in 1 Kings 3, and we think, wow, Solomon really did have it all. He had everything. He loved the Lord. He had unparalleled wisdom among the nations. He had wealth. Surely he will not depart from the Lord, right? But then when we go back to 1 Kings 11, or forward to 1 Kings 11, that's exactly what Solomon did. His wives led him after foreign gods, just as the one true God warned he chased after the gods of the Sidonians and the Ammonites and built high places, that is, places of worship for the foreign gods. And we know as we read throughout the, the Old Testament how important it was for Israel to remain with Israel and not chase after foreign gods. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament, we see God warning his people as they move into a new area. That he says, be sure, do not take foreign gods. Do not let your hearts be led astray. Stay away from foreign gods. Put them away. Follow me. 
Again and again, God says this to his covenant people, and he says that to us today, who are still prone to chase after foreign gods. We are to put those things away and follow after the one true God of Israel. Well, it's interesting. So you, you have this in 1 Kings 11, and you have Solomon building high places to these foreign gods. And this displeased the Lord greatly. And this caused the Lord's judgment to come upon Solomon and ultimately upon all of Israel. It was this sin that led all of Israel astray. And this has been one of the greatest revelations as I've continued to read through First Kings and Chronicles, and you read the stories of the, of the Old Testament kings. If you read through those after Solomon's death, you will notice several times that God was displeased with the kings because they would not tear down the high places. He, he, even the good kings, he'll say, he was a good king, but he didn't do. He did not tear down the high places. Now, these were the same high places that Solomon built, which they would not destroy. So Solomon instituted the high places. And for years and years and years, Israel wrestled with putting away these high places. So again, this was a very grievous and wicked sin that Solomon did. I believe there is a part of Ecclesiastes that serves as sort of a repentance narrative of Solomon. Solomon's looking back at the things that he's done, the pursuits, the passions that he's followed, and he sees that they are vanity, that they are chasing after wind. Though he lies and though Thing. At the end of his life, everything that he amassed was vain, vanity. Thus, as we read through Ecclesiastes, there are points where Solomon will just say, Love God, keep his commandments. Love God, keep his commandments. Thus, his comfort in life, at the end of his life and in death, was God not his possessions or his passions. So, that's the author of Ecclesiastes. What about the theme or the interpretation of Ecclesiastes? What is this book about? I've already said a little bit about that, but understanding the theme and the interpretation of Ecclesiastes has been incredibly difficult for the church, as I've pointed out before. Uh, some have argued that Ecclesiastes is entirely morose, they will say that Solomon has found that all of life, everything, is utterly meaningless and life is not worth living. And there are texts throughout the book, as, as I've studied, that you read that and you're like, yeah, that seems to be where Solomon is at this point in his life. But I don't think it's as simple as saying that, that Solomon is just morose or apathetic or uh, he sees that there is no purpose in anything. I don't think it's as simple as that. But I think what he's doing is he's recognizing that it is more important to have a right relationship with God and being content with God's providence than it is with 
passions and pursuits, all that he has chased after his whole life. He is saying to us, to himself and to us, to learn from God, trust and obey, and to be content in God's providence. I think there's perhaps a, a war within Solomon as there is a war within all of us between man's perspective of time, of, of history, and God's perspective of time and history. You have a, a war between the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. What do we really know about life? Life can be utterly perplexing and frustrating. I think everyone would agree with that. Why do things happen to us? Is there purpose for things happening to us? Is there meaning for things that happen to us or around us? So at times from our point of view, the things that happen to us from our perspective can be perplexing, can be infuriating, frustrating. We wrestle with these things, but we know that the godly perspective is that all things happen for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So there is purpose, there is meaning in all things. Everything that happens, there is reason for the things. There is purpose, there is meaning behind those things. But we do war with ourselves, uh, thinking that, oh, this, this doesn't make sense. This one's frustrating. This one's perplexing. I don't understand this one, God. So there seems to be this type of war, I think, within Solomon's own heart. As I was preparing for this Sunday School series, I found an article by a man named Benjamin Shaw, and it was on Ligonier's website, which was incredibly helpful, and I'm going to tell you the, the three parts, and then I'll, I'll talk about each part. But he pointed out that there are three things that we ought to know about Ecclesiastes. As we read Ecclesiastes, as we study this book, as we go through it, we need to keep these three things in mind. That is to say, from his perspective, there are three main points of Ecclesiastes. First, Ecclesiastes reminds us that life is very brief. He notes that many people stumble at the theme of the book, which is found in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We, we stumble at that part. We don't think that's how the book is going to go when we pick up the book. We've never read it before. We open it up and say, here's, here's the preacher, right? He's about to impart wisdom. And the first thing he says is, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. And you're quite shocked at that. You're like, oh, how's this book going to go? And, and that, that can give us pause to, to think about what is about to be said. The reader may think to himself or herself that if everything is vanity, and vanity here meaning meaningless or, or futile or purposeless, without reason, why should I even continue to read the book? If everything is meaningless and purposeless, why do we do anything at all? And some may see it as a contradiction to Scripture, but I suspect the reason of this misunderstanding is uh, from the word uh, uh, hebel, which is commonly translated as, as vanity. 
And he uses this word throughout the book over and over again. Then I kind of thought the same thought, I had the same thought as I was uh, processing all this for for study and for prep. I thought in first reading, this doesn't sound like a Christian worldview. This doesn't sound like the testimony of the rest of Scripture, as I read it the, the first time. And it was perplexing and confusing to me. How can you say that everything is meaningless when the entire testimony of Scripture is that everything has meaning and everything has purpose and there is a meaning to life? Things happen for a reason. They're not random. God has purpose in this world. How can it be that Solomon says everything is meaningless or purposeless? So it can be difficult to understand the book. But I think if understood rightly... It completely comports with the rest of Scripture and is in complete harmony with the rest of Scripture. So as I said, Hebel, vanity, is often translated as vanity or meaninglessness or futile, which I think, if understood correctly, is right on the money, but it has to be understood correctly. However, I think the best way to really understand the word is that everything is fleeting and that it it may be that Life can seem meaningless because life is, is fleeting or because we seek to find meaning or purpose or fulfillment in things that aren't eternal. They're transient. They're fleeting. They're, they're escaping us. It's like, it's like a, a vapor or a mist or a breath. One example I thought of early on in the study is like if, you, if you place your hand out before you, and you try to grab the air, right? As you try to grab it, what happens? It, it's like it just slips through your fingers. You can't grasp the air. It's transitory. It's fleeting. It, it escapes you. Trying to hold on things to things in this life is like grasping at the air. You can't do it. It will always escape you. Another example I thought of last night is to place your hand in front of your face and to blow on it, right? As you feel the breath hit your hand, notice how quickly it passes. It's there and then it's gone immediately. What James argues in chapter 4, 14 is that you are as a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That is your life on this earth. And then gone. Therefore, Ecclesiastes teaches us that life is brief. And it's actually because life is brief that makes what we believe and what we do and how we love one another so very important. It is because life is short that these things actually do matter. Second, Shaw notes that Ecclesiastes reminds us that we live in a fallen world. So you have the first, that life is short. Second, that we live in a fallen world. The reason life is perplexing and confusing is because of the fall of man. God did not create life to be confusing or perplexing. He created us to commune and fellowship with him and to have knowledge. Before the fall, Adam did not live a perplexing life. His life wasn't fleeting because... He was not at first subjected to death. 
So there, was, there wasn't in him a sense of grasping at air. He had life. Life also wasn't hard for Adam. Not in the sense that, that we would think hard. Nothing was working against him. As he tended the garden, nothing was working against him in his, in his pursuit. There would have been no arguments between he and his wife. Things would have been relatively smooth for him in his life. But it was through the fall and by his own sin that he and all that are in him was subjected to sin and misery. The earth was subjected to the curse. Now Jesus Christ came that we could have life, and have it abundantly, as John says in the 10th chapter of, of his gospel, and we really do. As believers, we have life, and we have it abundantly. We have that in Jesus. But though we are truly, and that's the key word, truly new creations, we are really new creations, we're not yet completely new creations, or or totally new creations. We still war with our own sins. We, we war with our sins to bring them in subjection to Christ. We give everything to Christ. We follow after Him. The world itself is not yet made completely new. We still war externally with the curse, with the fall. So though we have been truly made new in Christ, our bodies still break down. We still die. We still wrestle with thorns and thistles in our own gardens. In, our, in every aspect of life, there are thorns and thistles that we must wrestle with. Our own sin can bring forth horrible consequences that can wreak havoc upon our lives. These are things that can make life confusing, perplexing, frustrating. And it is the mission of Jesus Christ to reverse the curse as far as it, as it is found. And he is doing that by the triumph of the gospel on earth. But the way in which he accomplishes his, his purpose is through the march of time and throughout history. Because of this, we can grow greatly discouraged when we focus on things that are transitory, that are temporal. Ecclesiastes reminds us that we live in a fallen world. So you have first, life is brief. Second, we live in a fallen world. Third, from Shaw, he says that Ecclesiastes reminds us that though life is brief, though we live in a fallen world, joy is possible in this fallen world. Although life is transitory, and we live in a world corrupted by sin, Shaw says that our activities can sometimes seem futile. The things that we do can seem futile or seem meaningless or, or purposeless or of, of not much importance. Our lives can seem vain. The, the business of our hands can seem meaningless. So if this was all Ecclesiastes had to say to us, it would indeed be a book to stumble over, says Shaw. But this is not where Solomon leaves us. It may be where he begins, but it is not where he leaves us. 
He does not leave us without joy. We are led by the hand of Solomon to where we can find joy, and it's not exactly where we might expect to find it. He goes on to say that it's, joy is not found in the big events of the memorable moments. Instead, it is found in the ordinary, the simple, and the repetitive aspects of mundane life. Repeatedly through Ecclesiastes, Solomon challenges us and encourages us to, to find and take joy in the ordinary aspects of life. Where can we find joy? Joy comes from God and from what is ordinary. And what, what do we know about human beings? We like to chase the extraordinary. We live for the big moments, the, the big triumphs of our lives, but Ecclesiastes would tell us not to rest in those but to rest in the simple things of life. So Solomon urges us to recognize that the ordinary things in life are gifts from God to man. Now, have you ever thought about that? The fact that you could wake up this morning and go and make coffee, that is a blessing from God. The fact that you can get up and get in a car and drive to church and hear God's word is a blessing from God. It's not just the big promotion. It's not just the triumphs in life that we that we can find joy, but it's from the simple and the ordinary. Our labor, our labor and toil on this earth, though it is fleeting, though our time on earth is hard, it is a gift of God. Throughout Ecclesiastes, you'll see this. Solomon speaks about so many things being transitory. His life is transitory. His pursuits transitory. His accomplishments, all of these things will pass away. None of these things will remain. But then he tells the reader, there is nothing better for a person to do than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That is his conclusion, that you are to find joy in the simple and the ordinary. Then he also says, fear God and keep his commandments. This is Solomon's conclusion to the book. So he says to us, find enjoyment in the little things and love God. Follow after God. Love God's people. God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. Finding fulfillment is anything, in anything temporal is the folly of man. This is what Ecclesiastes will teach us. As I studied, I thought about something Augustine said uh, in his book, Confessions, and I thought it would be an appropriate slogan for this study. He says in his Confessions, that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. See, a worldly man may find contentment and joy temporally in worldly things. Worldly man finds temporal joy in worldly things. But that worldly man will pass away, along with all of his joy, all of his accomplishments, all of his, his passions, those things in which he found his uh, identity, his pride. But the Lord loves us way too much to allow us to find fulfillment in worldliness. He will not allow us to be content with worldliness. A spiritual man cannot find joy and contentment in worldly things because he is no longer worldly. 
he will find contentment in what is eternal. Rest can only be found in God and the things that belong to him. So with that out of the way, let's quickly look at, um, I don't know if we have time, probably not. I'll, I'll stop there uh, before we actually get into the verse. So I didn't even actually make it to verse 1, which is I kind of expected as I was <laughs> prepping. Kristen would ask me, how's it, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, I'm at like five pages now. And I'm just now hitting verse 1. And she's like, I may, you may not get to it. I'm like, oh, okay. No, I will. I will. But uh, next week, we'll look at verses 1 through 11. And what we're going to find is... Solomon, beginning his journey, he, he's going to state his thesis, and then he's going to explore it. He, he's going to look at, at his life, examine himself, and see where it leads him. And that is the challenge that awaits us in Ecclesiastes. So Solomon tested himself, so too let us, by the Spirit of God, see where we find our joy, our hope, our security, our delight. Are we also, like Solomon did in his youth, chase after wind? Is that what we do? Have we walked this same road of Solomon? Have we asked these very same questions to ourselves? Have we at times thought that what I do is meaningless, is purposeless? Over the next several Sunday school lessons, and I don't yet know how long it will be, that will be our endeavor to find out. Are we a Solomon? Are we acting like him? Questions? Uh, um, Benjamin, Benjamin Shaw. It's um, S-H-A-W. Benjamin Shaw. Like I said, the article was on um, uh, Ligonier's website. And it, it was incredibly helpful. I remember reading it. When I read it here, Shaw, life is brief. We live in a fallen world. Rejoice in God. So, come back to Ecclesiastes. That's what I need to remember. So, any other questions or thoughts? No? Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that uh, you've given us uh, the book of Ecclesiastes so that we may learn to find joy in you and find joy in the little things of life that, that, that you sustain us in life and that you that you give us life, and we pray that you would um, help impress this upon us, help us to, to learn to be content in, in what you've given us, to love you, to love uh, We thank you for this day to be able to gather and uh, worship you. We pray that our worship is pleasing to you. We pray that uh, we are edified by your word and that you would impress upon us again what what we ought to know uh, concerning you and what we are to believe and help us to love you. 